1: Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke versus Mike Farnworth and the NDP government. We still have the RCMP as the force of jurisdiction in Surrey, and the province promising to pay the expenses if the city continues to transition to a Surrey police service. It's a fight indeed, Surrey versus the province. And of course, Surrey taxpayers are definitely the losers right now. So, how is this all going to come to an end? Mayor Locke comes into the office back in the fall on a promise to end the Surrey Police Service transition. But who really controls this? Well, here is what Mike Farnworth had to say after releasing an over 500-page report from the Director of Policing Services.
2: The path forward provides secure policing that people can count on now and for the long term. The best way to ensure public safety and to put this difficult time behind us is with a municipal police force in Surrey. I am recommending that the city of Surrey continue with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. The province is ready to sit down with the city of Surrey to provide financial support so we can finally close this chapter of confusion and
1: uncertainty. Close this chapter and chapter and confusion. Okay well here's what uh, Mayor Brenda Locke has to say.
0: I am profoundly disappointed that the people of Surrey have been used as a piece on the Solicitor General's chessboard. The truth is, the original decision to allow this transition to go ahead was rushed and done without due diligence, and Surrey taxpayers have been paying dearly
3: for it ever since.
1: Okay, there are some of the players and the fight continues, but who really does have the power? How can we figure this all out? Well, let's bring in Hamish Telford, associate professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. He also is the author of Engaging Canadian Politics. Uh, Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Bruce. You know, this uh, is one of these stories that just doesn't seem to go away, and I wish it did. I really do. Uh, It seems like such a simple thing at this point to make a decision and just make it, you know, last and bring it into effect. But who has the power ultimately to do that?
2: Well, questions of power are one thing, and we can get into that. I think... You know, normally speaking, we want people to reach a consensus and cooperate. Um, that would be the best way forward. When when someone pulls out a big club and forces someone else to do things, resentments can build and so on and so forth. So I think that that was the intent of, of Minister Farnworth's decision last week, was to recommend the continued transition to a Surrey police force. Let's negotiate that. If you need some help financially, we're willing to, to chip in. Um, and of course, he made it very difficult for Surrey to go back to, to the RCMP. So he appears to be hoping for a negotiated settlement here and hopes that that Surrey will come along, uh, the new council and new mayor will come along to this idea of continuing the transition and, and putting the issue to rest. Um, if that doesn't work, uh, then I think, um, if Brenda Locke doesn't want to negotiate that, if Surrey doesn't want to negotiate that, then I think the ball goes back to Mike Carnworth's court. Uh, and he has to decide if he's going to take out the big stick and, and force Surrey to do it. My reading of the police act is that he could do that, uh, if need be.
1: Well, there's consensus, and there's also uh, game playing and rhetoric, and it happens on both sides here. But when you take a look at uh, this one from Mike Farnworth, it comes with that swack of free money uh, to help with the transition. Uh, that kind of is like saying, yeah, of course, it's your choice. But uh, by the way, if you make the choice, uh, here's a whole bunch of money to do it. And uh, if you don't go with that, geez, uh, let the taxpayers kind of get upset.
2: Sure. And one of Brenda Locke, yeah, in the clip that you played, Brenda Locke is absolutely right, that the, this idea of transitioning to a, a municipal force was not well thought out. Um, and and the financial planning for it was not well considered. Uh, and it is going to cost Surrey more money, possibly for, for a bit less policing as well. But now that the provincial government has said, OK, we will help you uh, with that cost, uh, the additional cost of running a municipal force, it should get down to a regular negotiation and bargaining session. Okay, how much are you going to provide us, and for how long? Those really are the questions I think that need answering at this point. And Mike Farnworth sort of gave his opening offer of, of 30 million a year for five years. Um, can, will he go up on that 30 million? Will he protract it? Will, further out than five years because of course this is a permanent decision the the, the municipal force is not just there for five years it's going to be there indefinitely now um using the rcmp surrey does get a bit of a subsidy from from the the federal government for running police so presumably they could hold out for for a longer subsidy from the provincial government to run a municipal force
1: amish it still seems like a fight fight between uh previous council and a current council and uh We get to that was then, this is now. Uh, This is now is part of what happened in the fall when we had uh, Brenda Locke come in as the new mayor. And she definitely ran at that point on the idea that she would be getting rid of the transition to the Surrey Police Service. So that's where we are now. My read on this whole thing is we now have a situation where she has said, no, no thank you, and... Anything else that is said by her or members in favour of what she's saying on council is going to be to back up the position that we're going to keep the RCMP. So it goes back to Mike Farnworth at some point, as you pointed out. And that gets to that police act. Does he have the power to say, fine, there is no consensus here. There is no agreement. It is going to be my previous recommendation, Surrey Police Service.
2: Yeah. Before I answer that, you know, it's not just Brenda Locke who gets to make the decision, right? It's Surrey City Council. So she may stick to her guns throughout this, but in the vote after the last election, it was a 5-4 split on city uh, city council. So if somebody from the other side defects, from somebody who previously supported her position in light of the new position of the provincial government defects, uh, then the council has made the decision and Brenda Locke is left in in minority. But assuming council hangs together on their original position of, of last fall, then we have to go back to the Act. And under normal circumstances, municipalities are supposed to create a municipal force or enter into an agreement to use the RCMP with the provincial government. But when we look at Section 4 of the Act, and I will read it to you, despite what I've just said, On the recommendation of the minister, the lieutenant governor and council may make regulations to enhance, provide or reorganize policing and law enforcement in any or all areas of British Columbia, including without limitation in any or all municipalities. That sounds to me like the minister does have the power to to direct Surrey uh, to adopt a, a municipal force if they're not willing to negotiate that.
1: That would be a very strong position the minister would have to take. I don't know if Mike Farnworth is prepared to take that position. The other would have been easy uh, if uh, if Brenda Locke said, well, it's not what I want, but uh, I hear what he's saying and uh, we'll take the money and run. Um, but with this, is there any possibility Surrey could come back and say, I see the act, but our interpretation is this and we're prepared to go to court?
2: Sure. Um, You know, that's what lawyers are in the business for. You want to make that argument? You can certainly find a lawyer who will argue that case for you. And of course, The provincial government would get its own lawyers and and i'm not a lawyer so so my my reading of the act is is not a legal interpretation um but uh, one would hope that it wouldn't go to court um you know i think most people reading the situation now thinks that the provincial government has created a situation where surrey has to negotiate if the mayor doesn't see that maybe someone else on council will see that uh and and council will make the decision uh and as i say leave the mayor in the minority
1: Well, thanks for your insight on this. And it looks like it's going to continue to be expensive and try the patience of those living in Surrey. Uh, Associate Professor of Political Science Hamish Telford. He's with the University of the Fraser Valley. Thanks so much and uh, appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome, Bruce. And this is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. A topic that has emerged this week, maybe a little bit more nuanced than we thought at first. The topic is expenses and our MLAs, or politicians in general. And it's come up as we learn more about Vancouver West End MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert residing in Collingwood, of all places, but living in Vancouver, of course, in his riding. Or is it the other way around when it comes to residing and living? You see, it's been three years that Spencer Chandra Herbert has been sleeping at night in uh, the Greater Victoria area, area in Colwood, and the travel between there and his riding-to-do riding business has been about $70,000. That for flights, helicopter flights and such, $70,000 over three years. What's fair and what's not? Well, he's being called out by Kevin Falcon and the BC United Party, and there's maybe a little bit more to the story, but When it comes to expenses, here's what the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has been saying. And I'm going to quote Carson Binda on this. With the CTF, he says, while taxpayers are struggling to afford groceries and to pay rent, our elected officials are spending our money living the high life, enjoying helicopter rides between their homes in Victoria and their constituencies in Vancouver. And that comes in light of what we've found out about Spencer Chandra Herbert and his travels. I want to bring in and I'll get more to the justification for those travels in a moment. But let's uh, get right to the chase and bring in from the CTF Carson Binda. Good morning, Carson. Thanks for being with us.
4: Hey, good morning, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me on this morning.
1: I know this is one of the topics that, as uh, director of the CTF, you're always taking a look at uh, the spending habits of politicians. But um, in light of uh, what we've seen with this latest case, what are your feelings right now?
4: Well, MLAs across Metro Vancouver are spending way too much on their travel to and from uh, Vancouver Island, to and from Victoria. And look, it's not just an issue with the government MLAs. Take a look at opposition MLA MLAs. He spent more than $90,000 on travel between his Vancouver constituency and Victoria over the past three years. So really what this is about is MLAs from across the political spectrum spending way too much taxpayer money.
1: Now, B.C. is a really big province, and uh, Victoria is at the very southwest end of it. Flights are not cheap. In fact, you can fly, and I've found this out many times myself, flying around the province. I can fly off to Europe for a cheaper price than getting a ticket, quite often uh, within our own province. That's just how it is. And we don't have politicians. Uh, they're not like U.S. senators. Uh, they're not flying on private aircraft. They're flying on public air airlines, um, but when I take a look at this, and it was brought up by Kevin Falcon, seventy thousand dollars over three years, we do know now a little bit more has come out about Spencer Chandra Herbert, and his reasons for that he does have a child with a very rare disorder and illness, and he has been visiting him in Victoria General on and off as the child has been in and out. That child, by the way, is one of 10 BC kids with that disorder, and the specialist is in Victoria. So when it comes down to it, are there cases where you have to have a little bit of compassion and heart? What do you think, Carson?
4: We need to be compassionate towards our elected officials. They don't have an easy job. But at the end of the day, when taxpayers are struggling pay their rent and mortgage, to buy enough food to put on their tables at the end of the week, there is no reason that this MLA with multiple multi-million dollar properties should be billing taxpayers for his, tra- his personal travel, by all accounts. He, we know that he flew multiple times same day round trips between his home in Victoria and Vancouver on, on heli-jet riding helicopters above his struggling constituents, spending tens of thousands of dollars on that kind of travel. It is tragic that this MLA's uh, family is experiencing such hardship right now, but that's no justification for misusing the taxpayer credit card.
1: Okay, this situation was called out by BC United, but we also take a look at uh, Michael Lee with BC United. He spent uh, pretty big on travels himself, hasn't he?
4: He has. Uh, Like I said at the start of this show, this isn't a partisan issue. MLAs from across B.C.'s political parties are spending way too much living the high life while their constituents are struggling. It's not a partisan issue. MLAs from all the political parties here in B.C. need to get together, talk to their neighbours, and figure out how they can save a little bit of taxpayer money on their travel.
1: I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, Lee, by the way, spent almost $90,000 on travel. Uh, that according, uh, according to what he's disclosed uh thirty thousand eight hundred in $32,000 32, the following year and twenty six thousand uh last year so that's for three years you divide 90 by uh by three it's uh what thirty sixty ninety thirty thousand dollars a year about uh that's a lot of money for travel even uh you know at higher prices uh, to get around the province isn't it
4: It is. And you mentioned earlier that we've got a big province. Both Michael Lee and Spencer Chandra Herbert are Vancouver area MLAs. There's nothing stopping them from driving down to Watson and hopping on the ferry for $18.50. There's no reason for them to be taking expensive helicopter rides and seaplanes back and forth from Vancouver to Victoria Harbour when they could save taxpayers tens of thousands of dollars by taking the ferries like normal British Columbians do.
1: And that's the interesting one because there are, in fact, professionals living in uh, Metro Vancouver and traveling to Victoria for work. And they do take BC ferries and they go on as a foot passenger often and take public transit from the ferry terminal into Victoria. Uh, It does happen. Um, But for some reason, do we expect or is there an expectation that MLA's time is more important? Is that part of the problem?
4: I don't think MLA's time is more important than any other working British Columbian. I don't think a politician's time is more important than a mechanic or a barber or any other worker that makes our economy go around. The issue here is that MLAs feel like they're entitled to to spending more of taxpayer money. They feel like they're entitled to flying on helicopters instead of going through BC ferries like the rest of us. It's, it's a slap in the face to see our politicians talking to us about affordability, telling us about the steps they're taking to make life more affordable, while at the same time, they're so flagrant about wasting our money and not even trying to look for savings with their personal travel.
1: Talking with Carson Binda, BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, about expenses, and especially when it comes to travel for MLAs in our province. We're talking about two that are in Vancouver and uh, the Vancouver area traveling to Victoria. So ferries are an option. Public transit is an option. It is a little bit more time-consuming, but it is an option. Uh, What about the rest of the MLAs around the province? Uh, What do you find? Is it fair when they come in with their expenses? And how do they stack up? Um, Are they the highest spenders?
4: So these two MLAs are two egregiously high spenders in the greater Vancouver area. It's a little bit hard comparing MLA expenses because, like you mentioned, some folks live way up north and have to take multiple flights to get to and from Victoria. That's not the case with with Michael Lee and Spencer Chagher. There is nothing stopping them from taking the ferry like every other British Columbian. It's a little bit different uh, when you look up north with MPs from, say, the Caribou region. It's more expensive for them to get to Victoria just by the nature of our province's geography. But that's not the case with Spencer Chandra Herbert and Michael Lee, which is why we decided to focus on them.
1: You know, I wonder if there's an innovative way to get around some of this. Uh, Have you thought of any sort of way that they can, um, I don't know, charter a bus on a Friday or a Monday morning and uh, come in? Or is that realistic? Is there anything the CTF has actually suggested to cut down on those expenses?
4: (laughs) Well, in this case, it would be as easy as Michael Lee or Spencer Chandra Herbert leaning over to the MLAs who sit next to them in the Legislative Assembly and ask what they do to save some money. I mean, their spending is egregious by the standards of the Legislative Assembly. Another easy fix that they could do is quite simply walk on BC Ferries. That would save tens of thousands of dollars a year, especially from Spencer Chandra Herbert's account.
1: You know, it used to be that Harbour Air had flights going to uh, places like Hernando Island and uh, some of the Gulf Islands, um, some of the more remote Gulf Islands on Mondays and Fridays. And they used to call them daddy planes, where daddies uh, or mummies would come in from downtown Vancouver and meet up with their families in the summertime. They'd get together and pool their resources and charter a flight on Harbour Air. Uh, It seems like something like that might even be possible.
4: Absolutely. That could be possible. Another option would be them pitching in to charter a bus and take it across on BC ferries. There's lots of options. There's lots of ways to be responsible with taxpayer money. But taking multiple same day round uh, round trip flights on a helicopter between Vancouver and Victoria, that's not how you save taxpayer money.
1: Mike is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett in for him. We've been talking with Carson Binda with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation about those expenses for travel and things like that for our MLAs, like $30,000 a year if you happen to be a Vancouver area MLA. Going to Victoria seems a little high. Well, Carson's still with us, but let's get to some of your phone calls, 604-280-9898. Your thoughts. Let's go to New Westminster and Terry. Terry, what do you think?
0: How are you guys doing? I'd like to thank the fellow that's on your show right now. Uh, thank you very much for sticking up for the taxpayer and uh, making sure that the politicians supposedly are supposed to be honest. Um, I basically have little use for Kevin Falcon. He is a professional politician. That's basically what he's doing with his life. Uh, you know. So if you don't like to go to the trough, just like Donald Trump, you know, I don't like politicians. Well, then why do you become a politician? That's total hypocrisy. Do something else with your life. you don't like spending taxpayers' money, leave the legislature, sign, resign your seat and do something constructive and free enterprise and start. stop talking out of both sides of your mouth, right?
1: Terry, I appreciate your phone call. And uh, Kevin Falcon, of course, has uh, come from, also has recently worked in the corporate sector. Uh, but uh, you raise a good point. Politicians in general, doesn't matter if it's left or right, does it, Carson?
4: No, politicians from across the political spectrum have a huge issue with wasting taxpayer money. And that's exactly why in our press release we mentioned two MLAs, uh, for one from the BC United, the Opposition Caucus, and one from the Government Caucus, because this isn't a partisan issue. Politicians waste money. It's like the law of gravity.
1: And it doesn't seem to matter if you're uh, in the Lower Mainland or, well, in fact, in this case, uh, it does matter and two people from the Lower Mainland have some of the highest expenses. Let's go to the interior in Vernon, Mike. What do you think?
5: Hey, good morning. I think your previous caller should do a little research into Kevin Falcon. I think he's—you he'd find he learned something. Um, so, what I don't like about this whole situation is that Spencer Chandler Herbert bought a property in Colwood in 2019, moved there but still ran for MLA in the West End, knowing full well that he was going to have to travel back and forth in order to do his job. Now, I understand that when you have a sick child, everything changes, and I mean everything, and that's fine. But what I find a little bit disingenuous about this whole story is the fact that that was, was or wasn't going on at the time, but he never told anybody, and he just moved, in, but continued to, to run as an ML for MLA in the West End, and I don't think that's right.
1: You know, Mike. Uh, thanks for the phone call. I appreciate that. It's interesting because we're here sitting talking about a family situation where we do have a sick child, and I don't know where privacy uh, comes in there. But if I d- did have a child that was sick, I may want to keep it private myself. But that being said, when it comes to taxpayer money and uh, how you expense it. It's a real difficult one. Let's see if we could get in one more call from Bob in Surrey. Bob, how are you?
4: Yeah, hi. I want to thank him for bringing up this point. I'm sure that 95% of the constituents in both of these ridings of the uh, United Party and of the NDP person,
6: they have no idea that this is going on. So I think it's good that this is exposed. And certainly they both, you know, they're not the king of England. They can both quite easily
4: walk or take their car onto a ferry. You know, it's ridiculous how we're just being played.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, thanks a lot, Bob. Uh, myself, I know of plenty of people who do travel, uh, and their time is important too, and they do take the ferry. Uh, flights are for those unexpected things that come up, and uh, certainly you know, $30,000 uh, of expenses doesn't indicate it's unexpected. Um, Carson Binda, it's not just uh, the provincial politicians. Uh, we're seeing this even with travel expenses with others, right?
4: Absolutely. I mean, Justin Trudeau was down in Vancouver over, uh, over Chinese Lunar New Year, and some FOIs by Bob Mackin showed that he spent more than uh, $50,000 on jet fuel for a quick uh, two hour visit to Vancouver. So, this entitlement, politicians thinking that they are owed taxpayer money to go on vacation, it's, it's disgusting, and it's gone on far too long.
1: Well, we need thanks. To tell our- Yeah, and it has gone on far too long. And we continue to hear these stories, and it continues to come up. And I do thank you for your time, Carson. Have a great morning, great weekend ahead.
4: Thanks, Bruce. You too. Thanks for having me on.
3: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Mike off today. I'm in the chair. Uh, coming up this hour, we're going to be talking a little bit more about gas prices. Did you notice at the pump a slight break for me this morning coming in? Oh, just down ever so slightly about a buck 79 from the buck 82-ish. Uh, what about the summer? Summer is a time that uh, gas prices usually go up historically. Well, Dan McTague is going to be joining us. We'll talk about uh, the move ahead and what he expects to see in terms of what we're going to be paying at the pump. That's coming up this half hour. Also, are you going to stay up late tonight or get up early tomorrow morning? It is the coronation of King Charles III, and that's going to have a lot of people wondering what the new phase of the monarchy is going to look like, King Charles III, how do you stay relevant? How do you connect with people? How do you make sure your message lands? We're going to be talking about that later on this hour. But first, talking about money, did you notice this? If you're in Vancouver, you no longer have to pay that 25 cents extra for a single-use cup. So your cup of coffee, That you get in a paper cup or uh, your plastic cup for pop. uh, You no longer have to pay that extra 25 cents. Did you notice it to begin with? Are you going to notice it now? Now that as of May 1st, the rules in the city of Vancouver have changed. To me, this all seems like a bunch of silliness, but let's bring in Ian Tostenson, the president, CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, possibly you have a different take on this, but uh, this whole thing, 25 cents in the first place, just seemed like uh, complete nonsense to me. Your thoughts? I agree with you. Um, It was so
6: poorly uh introduced into the marketplace um and I, and to, you know to make that point i think you're still coffee shops are still charging 25 cents because they haven't been able to get the news that they don't have to do that anymore so it, you know it was it was really misguided and it was hard because it was um 25 cents and then people go where's 25 cents going to It's going to the business and then people would say well they now they're making a whole bunch of money and you go well now now we're starting to explain all this right and they say well no no because they've got costs with cardboard recycling and you know it didn't make any sense the other side though um, is that people were just kind of hitting their cards, their debit cards, their credit cards and a lot of people said they didn't notice the 25 cents so what was the point of this? We we looked at it for about a year, no one had any data to suggest that it changed anybody's behavior Uh, and what we're trying to do here is get the cups out of the landfills and 25 cents is, you know, in my opinion, is not the effective way of doing that.
1: Well, it seems like it was a silly idea to begin with, but then we also hit inflation and uh, prices changed uh, so dramatically, anyways, just to cover costs. And quite often, that I would imagine would be well over twenty-five cents. So who's to know? Who follows it that closely? I mean, the whole thing to me, as you as you mentioned, um, I don't think anybody even knew. Consumer-wise, customer-wise, what was happening in the first place? Well, that's a good point, and
6: um, I think that you know uh, it's kind of nice to say Vancouver lowered its prices, but I don't know. Think that I get a lot of a lot of cafes will keep that twenty-five cents because they need it to do it. But you know, this is one of the hidden costs of business. There's oh. So,
1: I think we lost you for a second. Just a half a moment there, Ian, and we'll make sure that we we get you back. We got you back, Ian. There we go. How's that? Have we got you? Yeah, we do have you. You were saying uh, you think about businesses. Yeah, so they've got
6: so much to think about all the time. And this is red tape and regulation. So in order to implement what would seemingly seem a simple thing, they've got to train their staff, they've got to put out signs, explain the 25 cents, Uh, Some of them were trying to be encouraged to do um, uh, a cup share program, which is not going over great, especially right now. I mean, a lot of people are very reluctant to do that. So it is just not the actual cost itself. It's the actual administration of this. And then the the business owner would have to go to (laughs) City Hall in order to renew their business license and say, I used, you know, 300,000 coffee cups, and they'd have to register that and and in order to get their business license to report that. So I'm glad it's gone. What we need to do is get to a point of education. It's a real issue for sure. Berkeley, California has a 25-cent deposit. I'm trying to find out how effective it is. I, I don't know that it is. You know, um, what we said, ultimately, it, it, the, the, the literature will say we just have to educate people and encourage them to be aware that these coffee cups, you know, um, they go in the landfills, it's not a great place for them. And so we've just got to get people to change their own personal behavior versus penalizing with 25 cents, which was meaningless.
1: Well, Ian, here's the thing. I don't even know if it is the role of a restaurant to do that education. Uh, But let's assume it is. And I thought that there was already a move in the direction that uh, we were using uh, recyclable cups anyways. And those who were inclined were bringing them in.
6: Well, that's the thing you have biodegradable and you have recyclable and but all of them are not compatible with the system. They end up in the landfill because they all have the plastic liner inside that 's the only way it keeps it hot and stop the cups from sort of collapsing and getting mushy so it's they're not when it says you're recyclable or biodegradable it's not quite the way it is in Victoria, for example, and I think it's the same way in Vancouver. Uh, those cups can't be recycled into the system they don't have the the, uh, the machinery if you will to separate them and deal with it so they end up in the landfill and you know so that's part of the problem we need to develop you know full someone mentioned me today it's interesting you need to develop full-on paper cups no plastic linings inside but then you've got a situation where how many trees do you want to cut down in order to do that so it's it's a, these issues are so complex
1: they are complex. And, um, yeah, you know it's funny, Ian, because I think of my super big gulp, and I've enjoyed one or two over the years. Uh, going back years and years ago, they were in paper cups, paper with wax on the outside, and yeah. then there was this move to get rid of them because of guess what? Trees being the the big thing that they're talking <laughs> about. So they moved them to plastic cups. And then they move back to paper. Well, the same thing happened with bags in grocery stores. yeah, You know, it, it's hard to follow the bouncing ball for many of us. And I, I, and this is on the consumer side. What about businesses? Every time that they change, it's uh, it's got to be expensive when they change a system.
6: Oh, it's it very expensive, and in a in an environment of of labor, a very challenging labor environment, and you know, sort of high turnover it's difficult to have consistency in the business. Um, and, you know, for a business owner, a small business, well, even a big business, any business, to go out and have to do the research um, on what is available in the marketplace and find, finding products that are recycl- truly recyclable. And then the other thing is, the, the, because of the, uh, the, uh, the newness of this, the pricing on those products is almost prohibitive. So, you know, when you're already challenged trying to make money, in our business, and then suddenly you increase the cost of your, say, pi- paper cups, uh, your coffee cups by a lot, it, you know, it takes the incentive away. So th- I think the only way we can do this, and I think our education, what we're suggesting is we we, you know, we can, you know, the city's got some stuff about um, how to recycle and 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 more awareness campaigns and perhaps more bins on the street and getting the binners involved in it. I think we need some creative solutions here versus simply saying, you don't know want, you got to pay 25 cents, so that's not going to do anything. Just, there's no disincentive there for people to switch their behavior.
1: Creativity, that's amazing when it comes to thinking of policy, eh? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no
6: Ian Tostenson,
1: thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Stay dry. link is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett in the chair for him. Well, I mentioned this morning that a buck seventy-nine was the price for a liter of gas. At least that's what I saw coming in from the valley today into Vancouver. Some people saying they saw a buck seventy-seven so a slight reduction in the cost of gas. But what does it all mean, and uh, can we use that as any sort of speculation about what's going to happen this summer? Well. Dan McTague is somebody that's always got his finger on the pulse of what's happening in terms of gas prices and understands the reasons why. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thanks for being with us. Happy weekend ahead.
3: Good to be here. And yes, nice to talk about prices dropping for a change.
1: Yeah, it always is. uh, Even if it's a slight drop. And let's let's be honest, this one is a slight drop. Uh, What is the reason for this one?
7: Uh, well,
3: this is, uh, you know, an alternative to what would have been a surge towards the dollar ninety range, uh, as opposed to uh, where we are today. Uh, and much of it due, due to uh, U.S. Uh, nervousness over the banking crisis, over the debt ceiling in that country, the U.S. Fed raising uh, interest rates, uh, you know, continued good on the labor front there, uh, I suspect even to a lesser extent. Here in Canada with gas prices, uh, sorry, with uh, labor uh, uh, numbers looking pretty good. But that's considered very bad news uh, because it, uh, it's likely to lead to inflation. And, of course, that just means a greater probability of higher interest rates as the U.S. Fed is fighting, uh, well, call it what it is, the Inflation Reduction Act of uh, the Biden administration, uh, which is pumping a lot of money into the economy, They're trying to fight it with uh, with higher interest rates. Pretty Pretty common, uh, or rather uncommon, situation that we're seeing for this time of year, Uh, and it's it's led to depressed uh, energy, oil, and of course other uh, uh, prices. Commodities have been affected. So, uh, I think for the short term, Bruce um, expect the unexpected, which is lower prices. But this will correct itself, and when it does, we're back to two bucks a liter.
1: Dan, you haven't used uh, the D word, devaluation uh, or dollar, Um, but I think that's what you're getting at when you list some of those factors. The U.S. dollar has taken a big hit. Um, It's not just a hit uh, against the Canadian dollar. It's an international hit. Uh, When the U.S. dollar does take these dives, do we see the benefit? Is that what you're talking about?
3: Well, we do see a benefit if the U.S. dollar falls relative to the value of uh, other currencies, especially Canada. Canada, unlike most other currencies, is uh, not just hooked to the U.S. Uh, economy and to that currency, and all of our commodities are pe- ba- based on it. We're also still its largest trading partner. So one would think that there should be some kind of equilibrium between, you know, uh, over, uh, our, the value of our loony and, of course, their, uh, their greenback. Uh, but that's not happened, and it's unusual given that we have in the past benefited from the protection of the petrodollar. That uh, is no longer the case. There's a variety of reasons for that, but notably uh, the uh, blockage of pipelines, our inability to get uh, products to market. We don't have a lot of things that the world finds attractive, and therefore, if you're not attracting capital, uh, your, uh, your dollar takes a bit of a hit. What does that mean? Well, forget uh, all the other stuff. I can speak very <laughs> specifically to energy. An additional twenty eight twenty nine cents a liter, so that 's kind of what we 're at and unfortunately, those who think it 's a great thing need to look at their pocketbook a little bit more often because that uh, does have an impact right across the uh, right across the economy
1: hey Dan, so bottom line right now, if you were to take a look at all the factors you know and some of the factors that we may not know, what is your prediction heading into the summer? Uh, for gas, which would be like a buck eighty a liter right now, are we going to see it a uh, lot more? And if so, how much more by like July or August? Yeah, look,
3: fundamentals don't work anymore. They haven't worked in some time. Uh, markets are a little weird. Uh, but under normal circumstances, we, should, we would be at two ten a liter uh, by the uh, May two four, just after the May two four weekend. This time last year, you were paying about two thirty for a liter of gasoline. The the fact you're at 177 to 179 uh, is really a function of uh, nervousness in the markets, and uh, it looks like the future must at some point recognize fundamentals. Uh, Supply is tight, demand is surging, especially given these relatively speaking across North America lower prices. So I would uh, I would think in the uh, in the longer term as we head towards summer, uh, bet on a you know a correction to the upside at least 25 cents a liter. And I would expect that to happen sometime in June, assuming, of course, we don't go into some kind of global recession and uh, traders, uh, energy traders can, uh, can find their footing again and stop being nervous about things that have nothing to do with fundamentals.
1: <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I don't know what to wish for uh, the uh, the caveat there or uh, the caveat that comes with uh, a lot more harm. It's hard uh, really when you start to take a look at it, not necessarily uh, for gas, but some of the uh, reasons for a drop in price might uh, might actually be pretty bad news.
3: Well, yeah, I think it's underlying it is a weaker economy and a weaker outlook. Um, so yeah, we uh, we can celebrate saving a few pennies at the pumps, but uh, you know if we don't have a job or we don't have the investment climate or we can't get a loan to do our business, those kind of things do have uh, much wider uh, impacts on uh, on our bottom line. So I mean, here's where I, I do think we could see some relief, and that's if I compare year over year prices, average in Canada's time last year about a buck ninety, now at about a buck sixty. Uh, That's going to show up in terms of next month's stats, can report, and it may very well be helpful in terms of getting the the Bank of Canada to uh, loosen up and perhaps not uh, commit to any further increases at the very least in terms of interest rates. Uh, And in fact, uh, may very well have to look at uh, decreasing those interest rates, uh, not because the money supply has been expanded by the federal government, but also because the inflationary effect of energy uh, seems to have waned uh, considerably compared to, uh, say, this time last year.
1: Even if it doesn't put me at ease, I always love your uh, explanations <laughs> and your expertise. Dan McTague, thanks so much.
3: Always a pleasure, Bruce. Have a great weekend.
1: And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Well, first time in 70 years, a British monarch is going to be coronated. Uh, the coronation is set for tomorrow morning. 11 a.m. it starts on in London time. That means if you want to watch it, you will be getting up very early in the morning, our time, to catch this with the time difference. But it also begs an obvious question. And I'm going to say this when more people are looking toward what King Charles III is going to be doing in the next uh, months, years ahead. But is Charles really just a placeholder? And is the real excitement looking toward his heir, Prince William? And is Prince William, the Prince of Wales, going to be the one that really makes the difference? Well, these and other questions are certainly going to be coming up, but uh, we'll get to them right now. And uh, let's bring in Bruce Halser of the Monarchist League of Canada. Bruce, uh, thanks for joining us. And I know it's unpopular to talk about this uh, with the coronation coming up, but with three in 10 Canadians saying they're not going to be watching it, uh, one might ask, is is Charles III really the person to be heading into 2023 and beyond?
0: Well, Bruce, of course, the point of the monarchy is that it's not a political office and... We don't follow public opinion polls month after month and wonder what if. The whole point of the monarchy is that it's a long-term institution of continuity and stability that that we're blessed with, and uh, individual polls don't matter. I, I will say this though, you know, I've been a supporter of the monarchy my whole life, growing up in British Columbia, and at many many times during Her Majesty the Queen Queen Elizabeth's reign. She was lower in the polls and then higher in the polls and then lower in the polls again. And it really didn't affect anything in the long run. And I don't think uh, that the fact that some people, a lot of people might not want to get up at one in the morning to watch the coronation is indicative of much. I think that uh, the next time the king comes to British Columbia, there'll be big crowds out to see him and there'll be a joyous occasion as there always is.
1: Oh, without a doubt. And you're going to get that with any monarch, I think, uh, coming in. Um, but let's look at Charles III and what he's going to be doing because he's not going to be his mother. We know that. And there was a great amount of comfort my whole life in Elizabeth II being the monarch. Uh, more comfort than anything else than uh, looking for a message. She just seemed to be a figure that made it seem like we're all part of the same family. King Charles III is is quite a bit different than his mother. So what are we looking at in that, uh, in the years that he has as king, uh, to make the monarchy relevant,
0: I think that it's obviously very difficult for anybody to follow Queen Elizabeth II, um, especially in the last uh 10 15 years of her reign. She was incredibly popular and and be and well loved and respected uh, around the, the commonwealth and and around the world, so uh. Certainly, uh, I don't think there's anything Charles could do to, to match that. But Charles has also been the Prince of Wales, the longest-serving Prince of Wales in history. He ha- he shares a long history with uh, British Columbia and with Canada. He's been he's visited us many times. He's aware of our country and its development. He's probably been to more places in Canada than the vast majority of Canadians have. And and I think we will find that uh, he's very familiar with with Canada, and I think we'll find that his he's sensitive to the role, new role he has as king. And I think Canadians, um, those who haven't warmed up to him yet, will will warm up to him. And and the reality is this: Canada is a monarchy. We've always been a monarchy. It's the only way we know to do government. We've been a very successful country. Uh, we're one of the blessed places to live in the world. And I don't think even if there's some indifference to the crown, I don't think that there's going to be a large cry for change.
1: Well, Charles does have his own interests, and we didn't really get to see, at least uh, my feeling is, from his mother, much of a interest in her interests. Charles is different. Uh, we do know that he's got an interest in the environment, for example, and that may land and may have influence on many policymakers, would it not?
0: Well, Charles's role as king is, is going to be different than his long role as, uh, as a prince. And as a prince, he had a little more freedom to express his views. Uh, Elizabeth, his mother became queen <laughs> at a very young age. And so as queen, she never expressed an opinion on anything. And that started in her early 20s. So it's hard to compare the same. The fact that Charles has expressed fairly... Innocuous but obviously deeply held opinions about architecture um, and the environment and and organic farming and other issues over the years as prince not he hasn't expressed political positions, but he's definitely let us know that he, he's interested in these subjects. That's going to end when he as king, but of course we have fifty years of his adulthood where we' had this insight, which is just different than you have for somebody who becomes queen in in her early twenties.
1: Does it have to end? I know that was uh, the stance that the Queen took, but by anybody in that role, uh, you could have your own flavour of what that role means.
0: Well, I think in addition to the deep feelings that he has on subjects we've just spoken about, uh, King Charles also has demonstrated that he has a deep sense of history and a reverence for tradition. And I'm confident that as king, he will refrain from public debate the same way his mother did. She, it obviously worked well for her and was successful, and I expect we'll see the same from, from Prince Charles, or King Charles. I, I doubt that you will see him um, proclaiming even mild non-political views about about matters in the, in the future, and I think he understands the role of king um, and monarch is different than the role of a prince.
1: Elizabeth II seemed to have an understanding of uh, her role whenever she was on mic or on camera, and we know that the role that she played on mic and on camera was one of not expressing a great deal of emotion and being in control. That's not always the case with Charles, and I think of that famous incident on YouTube uh with the pen and signing, you know, where he's signing a document and the pen is uh not working and gets ink all over his hand and uh throws a bit of a temper tantrum. Are we going to see more of those or is that a possibility? <laughs>
0: well in a highly stressful time where his within uh within a day of his mother's passing uh, at a ceremony that was put together quickly and was very difficult, it appears that our new king expressed a moment of frustration with a pen that I think most people in that situation would be very understanding of and is pretty common. In my view, the media has made a little more of that than it is. It's not like Her Majesty never expressed emotion herself. I remember when uh, there was a fire at Windsor Castle and, yeah. and she was quite emotional and she went through an annus uh, some years ago, and her popularity waned as a result of that. I think those are um, natural human emotions that people have. I think generally people forgive those kind of, of incidents that happen, and they're, uh, they're in the long run not going to be relevant. I do think that Charles will be a steady hand, and he understands what the role of the monarch is, and I think uh, he will grow into the office.
1: Let's get to that question, relationship with his kids. How is that going to change?
0: Well, he appears to have a very good relationship with his oldest son. Obviously, there's been some difficulties with Prince Harry. Um, But what is also obvious throughout all those difficulties is that there is a fatherly love that remains there, despite a lot of popular opinion that Harry should be completely cut off um i I think it's fair to say that King Charles has continued to extend an olive branch, obviously loves his son very much, and hopes that the situation will stabilize it's It's Prince Harry's right um I suppose, to decide he doesn't want to be a member of the royal family and to and to live some, somewhere else, and there are going to be consequences to that. But I, I think we all probably hope that as a family uh, they will have a reconciliation. And certainly I think most observers would say that King Charles has um, shown a lot of patience and and love toward his son, and he hasn't done anything to precipitate uh, these, the divisions that, that are there. And hopefully um, Harry's short visit uh, this weekend will be a first step in uh, – bringing them together in some way
1: right now harry is of course uh attending we know that he's going to be at the coronation where is he going to be physically in relation to the rest of the family
0: well i understand he'll he will be um right with the family he'll be in a military uniform which he's entitled to wear um as a veteran and because uh, he gave up a lot of his military patronages but he still has the right to wear that as a a a veteran himself, and he will be at Westminster Abbey, uh, seated with the family in close proximity to his brother.
1: Bruce Cloggett in for Mike Smith. We're talking ahead of the coronation of King Charles III, which gets underway. The ceremony gets underway at 1 o'clock in the morning, our time, the coronation, as we discussed with Bruce Halser, who is... With the Monarchist League of Canada, the actual coronation, 3 a.m. our time. So it's just hours ahead. Here's, by the way, a clip of global news on what to expect. Here we go, just outside Buckingham Palace, you can see there King Charles greeting onlookers and well-wishers as we are less than 24 hours away from the coronation of King Charles III. And for many people, this will be the first royal coronation that they've ever seen. The ceremony for Queen Elizabeth II was on June 2nd, 1953, 70 years ago. 70 years ago, so a long time in between there Love to have your thoughts. Uh, Are you going to get up and watch it or stay up and watch it? 604-280-9898. Bruce Halser, pomp and ceremony to say the very least. Why do people get so excited about these events?
0: Well, it's a fair question to ask because, of course, Charles is already our king. Nothing legally changes with with the coronation. It's simply a a ceremony. But I do think that uh, collectively, we went through a period of mourning when when the Queen passed away in the fall, and after an appropriate the, the reason why coronations don't happen right away is because they are they're a ceremony they're a celebration rather than a legally significant event and it's a chance for us to say you know the period of mourning is over we are now going to have this collective experience where we're going to look forward to the new reign and in a in a tradition. Uh, that, that stretches back a thousand years, uh, you, it makes you, it reinforces why we have a monarchy, the sense of history, the sense of continuity that comes with it. It's, of course, beautiful pageantry and, and very inspiring uh, music and ceremony. And, you know, that's what the monarchy is all about. So it's a chance for us to mark something new and to positively celebrate that. Ah,
1: good point. Uh, totally positive. Uh, we've gone through the period of initial shock with the passing of his mother, and this one is a very positive event. Uh, let's go to the Tri-Cities and Penny. Penny, are you going to be watching?
7: I will be watching, absolutely.
1: And why? What is it for you?
7: Well, uh, just it's history-making. Never seen a coronation before, so that's uh, a big deal. And I think he's going to be a good king. He's very much about what's important to all of us, which is the environment, being inclusive, being open. I don't think he's going to put up with any nonsense from that brother of his. And uh, I think he's going to be good. He also is reducing the monarchy. He's trying to save money. And uh, so I think it's it's going to be interesting.
1: So he is a monarch, uh, in your view, Penny, for 2023. Uh, what about a son? Do you think that uh, people are still waiting for William and Kate?
7: Yeah, I think they are. They are absolutely, not. and I think the the royal family should um, they should put out the, the the cost benefit of having a royal family. They keep talking about how much they cost, but they don't talk about how much they bring in in terms of tourism, tax dollars, et cetera, which helps fund that
1: economy. I appreciate the phone call, Penny, in the Tri-Cities. Bruce, uh, Penny raises a good point. Uh, there is much more to the monarchy that really can't be measured, isn't there?
0: Oh, I think Penny's uh, bang on on that. Of course, the reason for the monarchy isn't to generate revenue. We benefit from uh, royal world tourism Canada from time to time, and lots of Americans come up and spend money here to to see our monarch. Uh, that's not really the reason why we have it, but it's certainly a benefit. We should all note, of course, that for can- Canadians, the monarchy is basically free. We pay no salary whatsoever. The day-to-day costs of the institution are taken care of by uh, British taxpayers. We do pay for the offices of the lieutenant governors and the governor general, but it's really a pittance compared to what most major industrial countries spend on their head of state uh we actually monarchy, monarchy is actually a real bargain for Canadians. Not that that's the point of it, but should be doing it.